everybody, welcome to episode 57 of Literary Disco, Cathedral of Nervous Horses. Today, we will begin with a bookshelf roulette, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I are forced to pick a book at random from our bookshelf and talk about it. And then we will read poems from the late W.E. Walter Butts, a New England poet who passed away last year. His new and selected poems are gathered in 2012's Cathedral of Nervous Horses. Knowing he's dead will change the way I talk about him. <laughs> All right. What does that mean? More respectful? Um, I don't know. Probably not. No. no. It never <laughs> no. means that. I don't think so. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, guys. Good afternoon. Hi. So what, you you end up affording more respect to somebody, a poet who has passed away, or... Well, when I think we, when Todd we means get... less respect. No, it's not about respect. Um, when we get to the actual segment on Mr. Butts, um, there, there's a problem I have with his poetry in regards to the word mother, which I think the listeners might know that I have. And, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd be less inclined to actively make fun of someone who's going to send me hate mail. But... Presuming I don't get on the Ouija board anytime soon, I might I might be more forthcoming with my concerns about his use of the word mother. Okay. That's all I'm saying. All right. That's all I'm saying. That sounds yeah. good. We'll so wait. something to think about in 23 minutes. Are, are you sure he's dead? It says he teaches in the low residency BFA and creative writing program at Goddard. Yep. On the back of my book. Yeah. He, in mine yeah, too. he passed away in March of 2013, early last year. Wow. Huh. Oh, that's so oh. sad. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this book is copyright 2012. Right. It's a little strange because it says he's the poet laureate through 2012. If you guys listened to my intro, I actually said all of this. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that. Yeah. It was a 2012 edition. He died early <laughs> last year. This is no, I was, all uh, in there. We, I, was, uh, I was playing a little of those crazy fighting birds on Facebook. I was doing that while you were talking. All right. Yeah, I Angry don't birds. really listen to the intros. Do we have okay. any, uh, yeah, do we have any numbers? Julia, for I, I view that as my time. The intro is my time. Just to cool out, think about All right, life. so Julia's been scouring Twitter for some numbers from listeners. Do we have any? Yes. We do indeed. Okay. Um, for a number and from... And remind, remind the listeners how to play this game. Okay. So um, this is Bookshelf Roulette. We are going to run to our bookshelves. We are going to find a book um, based on the roulette numbers that you guys give us. And then we will talk about them. Uh, whatever we pick is fair game. So uh, here's how it works. The first is a number from one to four, and that is the corner of the bookshelf with which we will begin. So top left is corner one, top right corner two, etc. clockwise around the shelf. And our first number is four, so we're going to start on the bottom left. Okay? Okay. I don't think that's ever happened before. Wow. I don't think it, it has. hasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our second number, uh, oh, and the number four was from Snow Butterfly Mango. Thank Snow you. Butterfly Snow Mango. Butterfly Mango. Thank yeah. you. I yeah, love that you know flavor. what? I always thought Ben and Jerry's did it so well, and then they discontinued it. It was just seasonal. Okay, and our second number. <laughs> the butterflies yeah, get a little butterflies crunchy. Are so good though, dipped in chocolate. I love those. They taste. Our like second number is from Justin Jacobs, and that's going to be the number five. So we're going to count five shelves up from the bottom left corner. And okay. then our third number from P.A. McGee is 13. So 13 books over. You guys got it? Okay. Four, five, 13. All right. Got it. Break. All right. Go. All right. Got it. All right. 
I I originally um Oh, I landed on um, Great Expectations, which was my my copy from uh, from Occidental College Library that I stole and was returned to me, which I think I landed on before and talked about. Yeah. So I went to the next book over, which is Paris Trout by oh, Pete Dexter. One of my all-time favorite books. Oh, yes, God, me too. Book. This book is so good, and it's one of those books that, for whatever reason, you don't hear about that often. Like I, I didn't. It didn't make it into popular culture. In a way that I think it really should. It won the it's National such a Book Award, book. I think, the year that it, it came did. Out. It won a yeah. National Book Award, and then they did make a movie oh, of it, a but bad like movie. nobody's really. Yeah, I didn't see it, but I heard it's not great. Um, anyway, it's it's an amazing book. It's a it's it's about a, 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 it's a crime book. It's kind of a straightforward crime, noirish Southern, right? It's in yeah. Georgia, right? Yeah, in Take Southern. Place in it's like a small Southern town in the fifties. It's just a great uh, anybody who likes a good mystery and a good um, sort of character piece, detective-y sort of vibe. But it's just incredibly well written. Um, it well, kind of not, takes. It's that... not so much about the detective side because you know who who killed someone. So Paris Trout right. is the local racist, basically, in a town filled with racists, and he kills a man and a woman. If memory serves me, he shoots a bunch of people and a little girl. He also kills a little girl, doesn't he? Yep. Um, and then it starts with the the girl. It starts with the, the, girl yeah, the been murder of the, the girl. Yeah, right. Um, and it goes through the sort of machinations of small town justice right. and southern law, basically. Right. It's more. It's from the point of view of the attorney, right? Right. Is it first person? Right. No, it might not be first person. No, it's person. in third person. Yeah, yeah it's third person. Around. But um, but if I don't know, for me, it was like sort of the better version of what a lot of pop noir detective books try and do. Um, it's just. It's great, and it's, uh, you know, as a fan of, like, Faulkner, it, it reminded me of some of the, you know, small-town Faulkner-y, creepy vibe. Um, it's just a great book, um, and I highly, highly recommend it if anybody... If you want, like, you know what it is? It's like what a Grisham novel tries to be. <laughs> like, Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's literally a time to kill. It yeah. is actually a, ti- a, a great version of a time to kill. Right, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a, a, a more realistic characters. There's still a great plot, but it's not about the plot. It's about the culture of this town and the people and this character of Paris Trout, who's this old racist that's just a great character. Um, and then his wife um, and the attorney. It's 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 all really 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 great stuff. I don't want to talk yeah. too much about it because I don't want to yeah. give too much away, but also because I don't remember it all the details. I just remember loving it. Um, the, so. the great thing about Paris Trout, the book. Well, there's several great things, but the Paris Trout's wife is one of the most complex, interesting characters in literature, and one of the most unknown ones because she is this refined Southern woman with huge amounts of empathy in her life who is in this marriage to a horrible, violent racist. And at some point, they fell in love with each other. And now here it is, you know, 30 years down the line, and her husband's basically a Klan member killing, you know, little African-American children and stuff. It, and it's just a, it's an amazing uh, study of um, the politics of the South, but also about the changing world that was happening in the South, 1956, 1958. Yeah. Um, it's a brilliant book. I love Pete Dexter. He, I don't think he gets enough credit for the work he does. He, he had another great book. Well, he's had a bunch, but another great one called Train that came out um, in 2003, I believe it was, that uh, 
was a stunner also. He, and he's a great nonfiction writer. He had a book of essays a few years ago. He's, he's just one of those people I think people forget about in, in the, the national conversation. Yeah, you don't and you hear know, about him that often. Yeah, I have actually never heard of him he, or this he, book. If For listeners, if you liked Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter by Tom Franklin, you'll absolutely love yes, Paris Trap. Yes, this is, yeah, exactly. Yeah, great book. Very similar. Great book. Cool. Okay, well, well I'll go next because I have a similar book, actually. Do you too, Todd? Do you uh, I actually sort of do in a way. All right. Mm-hmm. All right, you go, Todd. <laughs> go ahead. Well, my book is kind of surprising. So um, I'm at my office here at the University of California at Riverside. Uh, low residency MFA in creative writing and writing for the performing arts. Applications due August 1st. And um, <laughs> I have a shelf of books in my office from guests that I bring out for the, a series we do called Arts and Letters, where I bring out authors and we sit on a giant stage and I interview them about their life and career. And a person that I brought out earlier this year was Adam Mansback, who um, I think is most known for Go the Fuck to Sleep which was the oh, yeah. adult children's book that um, that swept the world, and which is extraordinarily funny. But what I think a lot of people don't know is that Adam has been writing books for years, and he, he found fame with Go the Fuck to Sleep, but he's been writing challenging, hard fiction for a lot of years. And um, one of his books was Angry Black White Boy, which came out, um, I want to say 2001. Let me see here. Uh, 2005. So it came out later than I thought. Um, and Adam had been a journalist for a bunch of hip-hop magazines, and he's also a rapper and a DJ. Um, and he's a, uh, a white Jewish kid <laughs> on top of everything else. Hmm. Um, and this book, Angry, white, Angry Black White Boy, is about uh, a white kid growing up in hip-hop culture um, and his time at a New York college when he begins, um, you know, getting immersed in the culture. It's a super challenging book about uh, appropriation of culture but also about um the way music and um and uh, literature affect people and it's it's a really challenging and not funny or um you know crazy book it's a a serious novel um about you know what it's basically what it's like to be 20 something in the east coast in that era with this whole generation of kids growing up on rap music who you know 50 years ago would never have listened to black music basically and now right. here they are and it's 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 uh, at the time when it came out it was you know it was challenged people were like how can you write about this stuff i think he was on you know you know news shows and stuff talking about it it was you know it was, it was a big thing and now it's in uh it's required reading in colleges across the country um just a really complex, interesting, well-thought-out, well-researched, well-written book about both academia, um, rap music, and, um, you know, the blending of, of cultures in America that uh, when it came out, I read, and then I read it again before I interviewed him out here, and was just really impressed by, at the time, he was, he was very young, um, about, you know, basically writing Sonny's Blues for the 21st century. I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. It's interesting. Awesome. Yeah. I was never into hip-hop you know like i feel like i was part of the last generation where hip-hop was just like a Mm sub-genre you know like there was there was a couple different sub-genres in the 90s and hip-hop was just kind of one of them and now hip-hop is so mainstream i mean basically like pop music is like so much of it is hip-hop um i had this weird experience when i i was 
I guess I was early 20s, um, I was hanging out with a couple uh, 12-year-olds. A woman I was dating had a 12-year-old brother. And so I took him and one of his friends uh, whitewater rafting. So we did like a road trip and went rafting. And then they were listening to music um, in the car on the, on the drive home. And they, they were obsessed with this hip-hop song. And I'm, I don't know the name of it, um, so I can't reference it specifically. But maybe one of our listeners know what I'm talking about. It's, it was a song. It was kind of like a, a joke song where it was making fun of white kids who listen to hip-hop like suburban white kids who listen to hip-hop and it was just so funny to me to watch these two 12 year old white suburban kids <laughs> listening to music that was essentially making fun of themselves you know like right. it, but it was a way for them by by loving these lyrics and laughing at you know uh, a, a, a hip-hop song that mocks themselves essentially or their own category it like made them feel like they were on the inside of hip hop mm -hmm. in a way that clearly they felt a little on the outside, which is why they needed this funny song. Um, and I just remember watching them and thinking like, that's such a weird sort of, you know, there's like a con there's a complicated cultural negotiation going on here. This is, so this was like 2005, six ish, you know, there's, there's still a complicated negotiation that I think like these kids, these, uh, they were both white Jewish kids, suburban um, ha you know, what they had to sort of do this negotiation that they had to deal with, like in order to accept that they listened to hip hop still, or that they, you know, it was, I don't know. It was really fascinating. Well, you, you know, I, I got into hip hop pretty young. Like basically when I was 13, 14 years old, I was listening to punk and new wave. And then I heard, you know, LL Cool J for the first time. And I was like, Oh, this oh, so is you were early. You were, you got into it pretty yeah, early. Like I, I got into like 1983, 84, somewhere oh, wow. in there. Yeah. Um, so I had all like you know cool Modi and all that shit, um, but I I've been into it basically my entire life, and even even as a kid, I just remember I remember listening to N.W.A. at Loon Lake, Washington, one summer, and my grandfather losing his fucking mind, <laughs> just losing his fucking mind. And it wasn't that I was listening to black music; it was that he had never heard those words coming out of a radio before yeah he was like fuck the police T turn that off we did not come to this country from russia so that wow. you could tell the police to go fuck themselves i'm like no you don't understand it's protest music he's like i don't want to hear that shit um <laughs> but the, the 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 other the interesting thing is that i think for suburban white kids growing up like here in the desert where i lived when i was in high school and where i live now you know, listening to, to gangster rap was, I think, the equivalent of, you know, the beginning of punk. Like, it, it's so outside yeah. of your realm of understanding that it's like, it, it, like, walk, talk, walk around talking about, you know, shooting people with your gats and, and living on welfare and eating, you know, government cheese. You know, that, that's a, that was a circle jerk song. And now the equivalent has been pushed forward into rap music. I, I think there's a, a very clear parallel in, in why it appeals to, uh, entitled elite 14 year old boys <laughs> right who want to feel like they're tough guys like like i i would roll around in my nissan Sentra listening to rap music looking like i was hard yeah if someone stepped to me wrong i was gonna shit myself like you know what, what am i gonna do um but i i think there's a real sort of fantasy element to gangster rap that that really appealed to me when i was 14 15 16 years old and i still listen to that music now like you put on Dr. Dre's, you know, Dre Day, I'll, I'm going to start, you know, <laughs> looking like I'm going to shoot somebody. Right. I, I still love it. I don't, I, I've never been able to get away from it.
Can I tell you guys a amazing current teenager hip hop story? Yes. I think I will. So uh, about a month and a half ago, I drove um, with a friend. Um, I co-own a improv studio, and she and I drove a van of ten teenagers from Hartford to Chicago, which is very far. Um, it's about a thirteen-hour drive. Uh, so we drove and, and so they're all like playing their music and stuff. And it was like total teen immersion. And it was, I, I aged, I aged a decade on this trip, even though the kids were (laughs) awesome. It just made me realize how old I am. And, um, I know that sounds cliche, but it really, it's when it happens to you, that experience, it's terrifying. So the kids, so it was, this moment was awful. They were like, yeah, we're going to play some oldies. I'm like, okay, okay. And they're like. And then they and then they go, we're going to play, and they're talking to each other. They're not talking to me. They don't care that I exist. And they go, we're going to play. You're just getting hemorrhoids from driving them for 40 hours. <laughs> I, I hear I hear one say to another one, let's put on um, the theme song from that show on Nick at Night. And I was like, okay. And it was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme song. Oh, God. <laughs> God. So to them, but, like that countercultural experience with that kind of—I mean, to them, that's you know, like what I Love Lucy was. To us, it's it's unbelievable how you know not countercultural Fresh Prince is. Whose phone right. is ringing? That that'd be mine. I don't know how to turn it off. But oh, it's turned off. It's, I'm in my office. So what you hear, people, is someone calling, looking for admittance, August first, 2014, for the phone. And you are promptly ignoring them. But you know, the thing is that. Will Smith was whack the day he came out. Like, <laughs> like he he was never. I remember parents I mean, just yeah, understand no. came out, Will Smith and that was that art. was the wackest shit that's ever existed. Okay, uh, you well, know I'm, it, the whole the whole process of gangster rap though has kind of died down, right? I mean, I I don't listen to hip hop, so I don't know. But like the whole identity, I. The idea of like being poor from the hood and being tough and shooting cops like that doesn't dominate as, in rap culture. It much. absolutely still does. It still it does. Huh? Still yeah. does. Yeah, yeah. It. I mean, the the pop charts are filled with rap music, but it's it's not typically that stuff. But you know, right. even even someone like Jay Z, you know, who started out basically as a gangster rapper and now owns the world, you know, he still populates his songs with guns and money. Um, right. You know, it, it, so it sort of has transferred from the street level to. The mafia level, which, you know, is, it's one thing to be hustling. It's another thing to be running your own criminal organization. And so I think it's you know, th- there's an evolution that goes along with that. But gangster rap music is still huge. In fact, they just announced uh, this week the that the NWA movie has been greenlit. And all the people that are going to be starring in the, the biopic about NWA and Ice Cube's son is portraying Ice Cube and all that sort of stuff. So it. You know, it's it hasn't gone away and it's not going away. I mean, it's it's a it's a money maker, and as long as there are seventeen year old boys who want to feel like they're tough, there's always going to be an outlet for that in the music. Um, and it's the same as it's always been. I mean, the difference between rap music and country music isn't that different. When you there's there's that whole subset of highwayman robbery country music that's existed since the beginning of time, or the the narco ballads that came out of out of Mexico, where it basically um, glorifies the the drug dealers and killers in in Mexico. It's it's all it's all the same subgenre, just with you know a different tune or a, a bigger beat. Mm. It's just and you know as long as there's cops and robbers, there'll be something to play music to. 
So speaking of guns and money, I'm excited about this segue. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the most amazing segue to what I pulled off the shelf, which is Joan Didion's first novel, Run River, which is about Ooh. a rich, a very rich uh neighborhood not neighborhood a rich community on this river in the south and there is a murder so it's all guns and money you guys no matter where we're from um so i have life ain't nothing yeah it's like guns and money that's right <laughs> um so i have this because i mean longtime listeners will recall that two years ago i read all of joan didion's work and this is her first novel and this was the first thing i read so i remember it pretty clearly before the haze took over um <laughs> and, and uh it's it's really interesting it's so it's amazing how for her first novel it's just so purely ditty and it doesn't feel like it's the beginning of anything it just feels like her so let me read some of the language um so this is describing the main character lily no one had ever called her beautiful let me start over no one had ever called her beautiful but there had been about her a compelling fragility the illusion not only of her bones but of her eyes It was not that her eyes were any memorable color, hazel, her driver's license must say, any extraordinary shape. It was simply that that they seemed larger than anything else about her, making her very presence, like that of someone on a hunger strike, a kind of emotional claim. It exhausted him to look at her now. Her eyes were too large. God, she's the best. Yeah. So so that's, yeah. She's so good. (laughs) So, yeah, it's, it's, I don't want to say too much about it because it's another kind of mystery novel and I can't remember at which point things were revealed. So I'm not going to spoil anything, but it's just one of those lazy rich people clinking around their ice and their glasses. <laughs> they like, they all get migraines and have to lie down a lot. And oh, I've got the vapors. Yeah. And uh, there's intrigue and murder. And they're, um, they're descended, the, big thematic thing about the book is they're descended from pioneers so it's you know it's meant to be an extension of the pioneer experience of you know who are we as americans and Mm -hmm. why did we come across this desolate land anyway kind of east of edeny actually um but with a more murder i i've never read any of john didion's fiction i've only read democracy which is sort of her nonfiction, like a a kennedy-ish family yeah um yeah, but it's it was a really weird book. Mm-hmm. I, I if I remember, it's like kind of postmodern, and you know, it's I, I, it feels in my memory, it's very disjointed. It didn't quite add up together. But her sentences are always so beautiful, like what you just read. I'm always like struck by her her insight. You know, her ability to to capture a character or describe a person or a situation just so perfectly. She's wonderful. She's a space mm-hmm. alien. She is. She's not like the rest of us. She's she doesn't. She's not made from carbon. She's of stronger material. She's a, a half-melted ice in a clinking glass. That's <laughs> that's her. All She's right. half-melted ice in a clinking glass. <laughs> wow, that's a really good description, Julia. That's, that's quite good, actually. Wow, I like that. You like that? Yeah. That, it's I like just that. reworking a sentence I just said two minutes ago. I know. But nevertheless... <laughs> That's going to be the blurb on the back of my book that you have. He's like dot, 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 half-melted ice, dot, 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 clinking glass, dot, 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 Julia Pistel.
we will now turn to a collection of new and selected poems by W.E. Walter Butts. I guess Walter is his first name. Um, the, the book is Cathedral of Nervous Horses. And the reason we are reading this collection is um, I recently reconnected with a, an old friend of mine um, who is a big literary geek. And he had um, gotten his uh, degree at Goddard which is a school um, sort of similar to where we went. Bennington it offers a, um, a uh, residency for writers, um, a, low, a low residency program for writers. Um, and he had studied under Walter Butts and was a good friend of his um, before he passed away. Anyway, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really glad. It was my, my friend's name is Rob Overby. He's a writer. And I'm really glad he turned me on to this book because... I feel, I mean, not only do I really like the poems, and we can get into that, but I also feel like this is an opportunity for us to read somebody who I had never heard of, and who, you know, he, he was a, he was the New Hampshire Poet Laureate for a period, um, and it just seems to me he's like a working class poet, you know, he seems like one of these guys who wrote poetry all his life, and, ne you know, he won, uh, he was nominated for multiple push carts, um, but he basically seems to have kind of gotten by being a poet and being a teacher and never really breaking into the mainstream or even within the sort of world of letters, having one of those instantly recognizable names. And so I, you know, I, that was what interested me about, you know, my friend Robbie saying, you got to read this guy. He's actually really a good poet. Um, and then when I read the collection, um, I really, really liked it. And it, reminded me that there's still so much poetry out there and there's so many people out there writing right now, including um, W.E. Butts' wife, S. Stephanie, who is also a poet. Um, and, uh, you know, I haven't read any of her stuff yet, but I'm curious about it. Um, so for me, I just thought this was a good opportunity for us to, to not only talk about him, but maybe uh, sort of poetry in general, contemporary poetry in general that is out there that um, we should all probably be paying more attention to. What do you guys think of the book? Likewise, I'd never heard of him, which I think is surprising because I'm actually in this in the world. You know, I know people on the faculty of, you know, just about every graduate school creative writing program in the country. And I'd never heard of him or read any of these poems before. Um, but I have to say the first poem of his that I read, the first poem in this book, knocked me on my ass. The last line of it was one of those things where I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, I now basically understand, um, you know, not just my mother, but I understand my grandmothers um, and everyone else who's ever, you know, had someone that they loved that was their husband and you are the child of that person. And then the husband dies mm -hmm. and you are, as the last line says, and I understood I was now the man she loved. Holy crap. Um, I, th I thought it was a, a, a quite good book. And the, a lot of these poems, just this is, I just want to add that it's perfect with the, ti the mm -hmm. title of the poem is The Inheritance. So there's good title, last line pairing going on. Go on. I Ty. think the, the working man aesthetic is really heavy in here. And I kept feeling like I was listening to a, like an early Bruce Springsteen album. You sure. know, there's a lot of factory imagery, a lot of you know, my father comes home. Yeah. yeah railroads, all that stuff. Clocks. Um, and yeah. I, I read this poetry um not in order i read it out of order because i found that if i read stuff in order that it be, it starts to dull in my mind a little bit um 
So the one thing, though, that that sort of struck me was, and this isn't necessarily a, a bad thing, but this is a man who obsessed over the same topics for 30 years of poetry. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, the, his relationship with his mother, his relationship with his father, and his relationship to uh, their death or their illness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess everybody has their obsessions. God knows, I think the three of us probably do. But it's sort of interesting to see a writer evolve that obsession to ruminate on a topic for 30 years and have it change over those 30 mm-hmm. years and, and appear at different angles. So that even his last poem, um, which he wrote apparently for this book, which is called The Past, is basically a rumination on yep. the first poem in this book, The Inheritance. And uh, I thought that was quite striking. Yeah, um, I, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, um, we should say these poems are extremely readable. There's They're just little stories as poems. Um, so I just want to put that out there. The style of it is very direct. Um, my general feeling was, and I'm not sure if it was the repetition getting to me or something else, but I actually really like the earlier weirder poems more. I thought it got more... You know, it really felt like a summing up of the themes, his new poems. And, I, you know, it's funny because especially now knowing that he has died, it really reflects the process of aging. You know, it's going over these same memories that through so many different lenses and so many different, you know, unapologetic kinds of remembering them. Um, but I really like the ones that were extremely dark um, in the beginning, I love the one about, um, let me see if I can find it. The nursing home. Oh that yeah. Really that's an depressing. amazing Martin, Martin's nursing home. Page 13. Yeah. Um, it, it's pretty short. Should I just read the whole thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Martin's nursing home. Black ladies in pink dresses walk and wheel the dying into the solarium. A woman, like someone recalling an adolescent love, cannot name what she had for dinner, but insists it was very good. A man points at a bookcase and claims he read every book before he came here, then says, but that's not the whole story of my life. There's something sinister about the way the dusty windows refuse to allow winter light to enter the room. This is a place where the old surrender the day to a bite of forbidden candy or a long heavenly pull from what may be the last cigarette. Television announces the news above their bowed heads and the cracked tile floor. Afternoons, they wait in the cold, grave lobby for the visitor that never comes, then reminisce over the children who could have treated them well. Once a month, there are two glasses of wine in the basement and the required dance. The end. <laughs> that is so good. It's yeah. so depressing, yeah. but it's, it's so, so good. good. <laughs> oh. have, have either of you ever had uh, a relative in a, in a nursing home oh, yeah. that you've gone to? Yeah. I mean, my grandmother my still mom was basically. Yeah. I mean, that's exact. It's an exact replica of what of what he said. I mean, <sighs> where my mom was, um, where she ended up dying. Um, I mean, that that's exactly how it was. And part of me is like, oh man, it's a cliche. This poem, and then the other part of me is like, no, this is truth. This is yeah. this is just how it is. And it feels like cliche because it is a replication of life over and over again. Because that's how they do it. They warehouse the old and. I think we all end up, as people, having the same anxieties, the same problems, the same issues when when the last days are you know are upon us. Yeah, that that one 
that one made the pollen count rise up in my house. Well, I think when I read Todd, <laughs> I want to jump in on that because I think what you what you just said about this poem is actually true for his career in general, which is mm-hmm. um, there is something cliche about some of his subjects. You know, like I, like once you read, I mean, I read these in order, and once we you get through basically poems from his first collection you kind of get everything he's going to talk about he's going to talk about his Mm -hmm. father's grave his mother the continuity between generations he's going to talk about movie theaters a lot and movies um and and working class growing up working class or growing up poor actually i I think he Mm -hmm. actually grew up pretty poor um and 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 moving into a a middle class lifestyle um I, i that's it like it's not that ambiguous he's not an ambitious poet in the sense that he's not trying to reinvent the wheel in terms of form. And he's not trying to even really talk about complicated subjects or, um, approach subjects with a really fresh, crazy new insight. He's more like, um, a, 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 a poet who's going to, like you said, tread tried and true territory, but just do it really well. And mm-hmm. and give new life to ideas that may seem at first cliche, um, and that I really loved that. I just I, I loved him as a as, like I feel like he's one of those poets who I could if somebody was going through something that I felt connected to one of these poems, it would be a great mm-hmm. poem to share. Like I, I right. he's like the type of poet I would say, oh, you've had a recent death, or you had to put your your parent into a, a nursing. Well, maybe home. maybe don't this. have them read that nursing home poem because they'll fucking kill themselves. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh yeah, that's oh, true. you're going in the nursing home. <laughs> well, Here's what's coming up for but you. But do you know what I mean? Like I feel like he gets to something that that's a kind of elemental, and it could be viewed as cliche. And and I think that's probably part of the reason why he's not a better known poet is because of course we tend. Poetry is such a marginalized art form anyway, but that we tend to be more attracted to the experimental, the out there, or the one that treads a new idea. You know, if you write a poem about a ketchup packet, you'll get more attention. But if, you know, if you're going to sit and write a poem about visiting your father's grave, that's something we all feel like poetry's kind of done before. Um, But I I, I don't know. I, I think he really did something did something that's important. He did, he, he, well, he kept doing it. He did a lot of great things um well, by yeah, treading the same I think, territory i think the the interesting thing is that so the poetry that i've been reading lately um on the show or off the show has a lot of it has been by women and a lot of it has been by minorities mm-hmm. um because people keep saying hey you if because i had expressed my great love of when my brother was an aztec to so many people that people keep saying oh you should read this you should read that and the problems that exist in those poems or the emotions exist in those poems are so fundamentally different than sort of the old white guy problems right um that i think the bruce springsteen comparison and sort of that working class poet ideal is you know it's not in vogue because he's not talking about being molested um he's not talking about being oppressed he is merely talking about you know i thought of my friend who had this happen to him or i'm thinking of my father and my father's friend and so he's an observational poet versus a strictly emotional poet about himself. Hmm. And I think that's that's not in vogue, certainly, but it's also it's also a way, I think, for me of connecting you know, my my middle aged white guy problems of, oh, I'm I'm troubled by this thing that happened to me in the past, or I'm troubled by my relationship to my mother, or I'm troubled by my relationship with my father. Mm-hmm. And here's someone who has that same set of problems. And I think there's there's value in that, but I think the value in it loses 
at least in contemporary poetry, to the value of inventiveness. Like people want to see someone doing something completely outside the realm of normal everyday writing. And so even a poem like um, City That Never Sleeps, which is uh, an ode basically to uh, a character actor named Chill Wills, who Mm -hmm. was a popular character actor in the 1940s and 50s and was the voice of Francis the Talking Mule and was cast to Chicago, the city itself, in human form in the 1953 noir classic, The City That Never Sleeps. And he writes this narrative poem basically about being the voice of the city that I think is really cool. Maybe I I should just read it since it's short. Um, Listen, if I can play a talking mule, I can do this. Think about it. How many times did you see me handle Donald, that foolish kid who'd rather dance through the finale than go someplace quiet with a pretty girl who'd put up with him the entire movie? Look, since I was 12, there's been a red-haired woman dancing inside my head, slowly, almost removing the veils, shrouding her secret places. But there's always some cop blowing the whistle, and now this. Just when the gumshoe who'd been following my every thought was about to quit, he's pulled back in by that dame at the Flamingo, and I can't warn the flatfoot not to leave his wife because the L was rattling the tracks, louder than gunfire. But you know how it is, to have your life fast-forwarding like a runaway train. This is just one night. And who wouldn't want a chance to be his own city? It's a, I mean, it's a great little poem. Yeah. But no one born in the last 30 years knows, knows who the fuck Francis the Talking Mule is and has never seen The City That Never Sleeps. And so while it's a great poem, if you're 19 and you're reading this in some contemporary poetry class, the illusions are gone. As much as an illusion in a Robert Frost poem are gone, but the emotional resonance of it is even secondarily removed because he's talking about characters in movies that these people have never seen and not just experiences or pop culture moments it's a strange um it's a strange i guess emotional pull that goes along with that i think where he really excels for me is um i just think his endings are so surprising often or you know just just so well done so like another one that i really liked was um the commuter um and, you know, my dad commuted into New York. Well, he still commutes into New York forever. So I, I love reading and thinking about commuting because it's this whole own little subculture. Mm-hmm. Um, this poem, you know, it goes over all the usual ground of, like, how boring it is and how dead everyone is inside. Fine, fine, fine. <laughs> but then... <laughs> how we're all going to fucking kill ourselves and step in front yeah, of the train yeah. eventually. John Cheever, John Cheever, John Cheever. Okay, and then... <laughs> And then at the very end, I just, I, this is like the best ending. I just love it. Um, so here's, so the, I'm going to read two, a sentence before the end so you can get the tone and then the very end. So this still in the depressing is, still every day I join the anonymous walk from one office building to another, then rise and return from the city's slow burn and smoke. Okay, fine. But then here's how the poem ends. Lately... <laughs> Lately, I imagine, instead of stopping at our towns, we keep traveling together until we become the only world we know, like one of those lost expeditions of Arctic explorers who, when discovered after years of ingenuity and survival, no longer devour each other from hunger but for the ritual. That is a great ending to a poem that, until that point, almost anyone could have written. You know what I mean? It just takes these turns. It's like a... You know, like a duck paddling in a pond yeah. and then suddenly it flies and you're like, oh shit, ducks fly. <laughs> That's how I felt about this book. Oh shit, ducks fly. <laughs> Quoth 
Quoth Julia Pistel. <laughs> that's a that's a great way to put it. The endings are are, are really good. I love um, you know he has a lot of he he's memory is a, a big thing for him and and nostalgia. But memory, he's always talking about sort of how memory lasts and idealism lasts, and then right. life doesn't. Like it's a pretty sad book. It's really there's always the sort of crushing reality of time moving on and leaving us with these memories. And I feel like there's so, so many of these poems are an attempt to sort of understand a moment or understand a memory and why he's held on to it. Um, despite the fact that life keeps rushing by. And I, I think that that's so beautiful because that's something that, that poetry can do really well. Um, you know, because like, if you were to, I mean, you think about a photograph, what a photograph does is sort of capture a moment and the way that a photograph gains meaning, the more candid or forgotten it is. And then you sort of stumble upon it and you're like, mm-hmm. wow, that photo totally captures the way that relationship was, or the fact that we were laughing in that moment or whatever. I feel like some of these poems are, are like that, but it's, 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 it's like you're with him as he looks at back at a photograph, which is just this sort of glittering moment mm-hmm. and sort of discusses it and describes it. And you're, but then he always has that moment where the reality of like, but that was all long ago and everybody's dead and <laughs> life is pretty, I mean, it's this constant battle between the cynicism of, you know, facing the reality of, of dying and, 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 and relationships, losing relationships or things passing and the idealism that he sort of starts with. And he usually locates it in, in being a kid. One of my favorites is, um, movies in a small town, 1957. Um, because it, to me, it's you know, it's it's that idealism is projected onto this art form, the, the the film, and what what you get from sitting in a movie theater and how it activates your imagination, um, and then how sort of reality doesn't live up to that, or right. it's this tension with reality. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Movies in a small town, 1957. In the dimness, we felt our way along the rows of upholstered seats as a pinpoint of light above us suddenly expanded across the screen like creation. The previews came first, all the best parts of the future. We watched the show until its final scene, when the hero we thought was doomed survived after all. The whole place lit up, and we remembered who we were. My first job was at that theater, Friday nights, placing programs for the next week's movies under the wipers of the parked cars out back. Once, beneath moonlight and wind flickering through the trees, a boy's curiosity bent me over the bridge toward a catastrophe of swirling leaflets, One of those events that does not seem to be happening to you, but it was happening to me. Helpless, I saw their lost message of adventure and romance drop over the dam and disappear. Past the closed stores and tired faces of shoppers, I started for home, plotting my explanation. I had learned how the world could go out of control, and sometimes we were not what we wanted. I didn't know how this would end. Outside the taverns, children laughed and played on the steps, or sat alone in the shadows and cried. I had no excuse. This was everyone's life. Yeah. I love, I love that, that poem so much. It's I in- love it. It's like, it's so evocative of a very personal moment. And But then, like, I, if anybody sat in a movie theater as a kid, you had that moment when the lights come up and you were like, oh, back mm-hmm. to me and back to real life. And I, I just, you know, as a, obviously, like, a big movie person, his poems like that. He has another one where he talks about how they... They came come out of a movie theater pretending to be, you know, the heroes of the movie, mm-hmm. and and again, you know, reality sets sets in. I just I love. I think that it's stuff. interesting, by the way, that you guys have both picked out the poems that were my absolute favorites. Oh, <laughs> I think really? the three of us probably share. Oh yeah, 
probably share an absolute aesthetic. There, there is a poem that I think of as sort of the the brother to the one that you were just reading, writer, which is "What We Did Wrong," mm-hmm. 1956. Um, oh which yeah. I, I'll, I'll just read it and we can talk about it. Um, what we thought we did wrong was lust for the new bodies of the older girls. We delighted in a child's tests of cruelty. Tearing things apart made us whole. The Jewish junk man suspected this and drove his old gray daily bias in silence. The time he left his wagon unattended, we set fire to the oily rags piled up in it. When he came screaming down the air- road, the air blackened with our laughter. We laughed at the yellow-eyed Negro who chased us epileptic through the town's main street on Saturday afternoons when we were 12, and we made the alcoholic Indian dance around the flagpole in front of the post office until the night he was run over dead by a drunken traveling salesman on 490. Twenty-five years later, I see those older girls young and feel again the dumb ache after a madness none of us understood. And I think, I mean, it's it's sort of a a sibling, like I said, to the previous one, but it also goes through and lists the cliches, <laughs> you know, which I think is is kind of an amazing thing, you know, to to say the Jewish junk man, the yellow-eyed Negro, the alcoholic Indian. I think it takes some guts to do those things. Yeah. Um, and by the way, right now, all of a sudden, Julia, you are dappled in the most beautiful light. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's, I have a skylight in my new house. Here, I'll move. <laughs> no, it, it's not disconcerting at all. I'm going to write poetry. And Julia, okay. dappled in the most beautiful light, we set fire to her, and she burned in front of us. Oh, um, great. But it, what it is, it's these... It's this melancholy remembrance that ends in violence, <laughs> you know, right. that, that that has this tragic end. It's like every ending of a poem is a, you know, you think maybe he grew up in the same city as the Hardy Boys, where there was an yeah. angry hobo around every corner and a wig store. Right. Well, he's reflecting on the sort of un, un, unrealized racism of his youth, you know, right. like, oh, we just did these funny things because we were 12, but, oh, right, yeah. that was completely us you know absorbing stereotypes and and lashing out in awful ways Mm -hmm. Um, yeah i really like that one too we are picking out all the same poems out of a lot of about a hundred poems here uh, i think we have to address the elephant in the room what (sighs) poems about mother poems about mother poems that say mother poems that start out with mother poems that have mother in the middle poems that end with mother poems end with father there are a lot. There are a lot. There's there's too many to make me feel comfortable about reading this book. <laughs> I thought there were more father than, than mother, but there, there there's a lot of parents. There, there's a lot of... Oh, I just found one. Mother, we look at your grave and see an end. That's pretty classic. Father has been buried here half my life. That's the same poem I'm looking at. Oh, okay. I'll move forward. <laughs> Actually, one that one that I I actually really love the line. It's the last the last line of the the last section of the lover. I doze and for a moment smell the elegant wood of my father's casket. Then wake, thinking how our tragic loneliness is also our magical life. Yeah, I really that's like good. that. But there's father's casket. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I, I think that there is some it 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 lends itself to cliche, but. I don't mind. I really don't. I mean, I found the the father mother references weren't usually the best poems. Yeah, but, and I um, think that's that. I mean, I'm I'm 
making fun of it because it's my my bugaboo but that was the thing the obsession that in the early poems i got you know um Mm -hmm. but the the later poems in his life i my thinking was okay everyone's parent dies everyone has a relationship with their parents that is at some level difficult um how much ruminating on the same topic does one artist need to have? And I guess that answer is an infinite number. I mean, if that's your thing, that's your thing. Um, but it, the, the, the sameness of that memory, the sameness of that topic, frankly, began to grate on me a little bit. And I think that's what lends huh. itself to, you know, my cliched poet voice thing that I do is that you can you can do a poem that says mother i remember your death and people will be like oh fuck i'm at a poetry reading at a coffee house called common grounds in some small college town um and it doesn't mean that the poem is is bad because i think his poems are quite good but it it delves into the i think that easy territory and that's when i really found myself wanting to be more challenged by um w.e butts's emotional dexterity i just wanted something different yeah, and I mean, this is a collection that, you know, over the course of his life, so I'm sure someone, I guess him, was choosing thematically. So, you know, we're getting a really concentrated version of these poems. Or there were thousands more. <laughs> and this is less. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it, it was a lot easier to gloss over those than some of the more interesting uh situations or you know it's i mean again like we're reading poetry I, it sounds like we all sat down and read this pretty much cover to cover which is not normally how i read poetry either so mm-hmm. it does kind of have a cycling effect mm-hmm. in that way of like we get tired of it well i also I wonder thought... and this is a this is a weird question but i wonder also if maybe part of it was that he didn't know if anybody was listening mm. you know what yeah. i mean like like he was never if he never became super famous and he was writing all of these and I mean you look in the back, they were all published in small literary journals. That means that he was really probably trying to still find an audience all throughout his career and not feeling like necessarily you're coming to his poetry knowing, oh, from the last collection of W. E. Butts, now I can, hmm. you know, dive into this new collection. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean the fact that all three of us had never heard of him and we're all pretty literate and into these worlds a little bit at least. Um I don't know. I, I wonder if maybe that if, if he had ever had like a hit collection, you know, which I feel like a lot of poets, usually their first collection the reason that they are poets for their entire life is because when they were in college, you know, they were selected for the Yale Younger Poets series or, you know, they, it seems like the first collection of a poet is usually a pretty big hit. And that's why they continue to have a, a, a career. But I don't know if he had that. So I wonder if he was constantly retreading the same territory because he felt he could mm-hmm. because it, it didn't, you know, I don't know. Just a thought. That's really that, yeah, that's an interesting thought. I mean. Yeah. I am just now looking at sort of where everything was published, and it's not like he had something in the New Yorker, you know. Um, no. I, I mean, you you have to look, you you have to want to find the Cimarron review to read the poem in the Cimarron right. review. Um, right. And he didn't. He didn't. I mean, he was the poet laureate of New Hampshire, but you know, I guess what happens in New are, Hampshire stays in New Hampshire. Say, what is the population of New Hampshire to begin yeah. with? And so his, being, and being the, a poet in New Hampshire probably reduces the options. There's probably like 30 poets in New Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> it just so revolves being the poet around there. Uh, rude. Whoa. Sorry. I bet there's a lot of poets in New Hampshire. 
hmm. lot of publishing poets who could be the poet laureate. Well, and it, and it looks like his book Sunday Evening at the Stardust Cafe, which um, a lot of the poems are excerpted from here, was a finalist for the Philip Levine Prize, which is a, a quite big prize that um, okay. the University of California puts out. Um, and he was the winner of the 2006 Iowa Source Poetry Book Prize. But I, if he had won the Philip Levine Prize, I think it would be a larger um, a larger knowledge of him. That's interesting. I, I wonder. I just want to know more about these people out there. Like, I want to find more poets like this. Like, who – how do you find these people, you know? I, I, I'm sure yeah. – I mean, part of – I think, you know, you go to AWP and you hear them reading. You know, I, I but think – so often they suck. Like, I feel like so often <laughs> I, I have that experience where I try and seek out and I'm just, like, baffled by a reading. Or I don't right. know why somebody's writing the things they are. Or they're sort of caught in this, like – internal referential poetry loop that just i feel on the outside of like and i don't know and i think it's i think a lot of it actually has to do with what you're saying earlier about you know his relative anonymity is that unless he's being published by a big press so if he's being published by wave or coffee house or copper canyon you know one of those presses where you see their books in stores or they're winning the top prizes i mean there's there's a thousand there's a thousand books just Mm -hmm. like this one um that are out there. I mean, even someone like, like my friend uh, Jill Esbaum, who teaches for me. You know, she's won two NEA fellowships, wow. which is amazing. You don't That's win crazy. two NEA fellowships as a poet. You don't win two NEA fellowships as anything. Wow. Like Jonathan Franzen hasn't won two NEA fellowships, but here she is, and she's you know got two NEA fellowships, and she's got five books of poetry, and you can't find them in bookstores. Um, you don't know her unless you're looking at Poetry Magazine on a regular basis. And she is one of the top American poets. So it's its its own, I think, closed ecosystem, too. I mean, it, it goes back to something we've talked about a lot as it relates to poetry in America, which is that it's not popular enough that people who don't read it find it. Yeah. Um, you have to already be in that world, I think, to know these people. But even still, being in that world, there's, there's plenty of people just like this guy that we've, you know, that were completely lost to us. Um, I think of it in a way like um, like indie rock music. If if Spotify didn't exist or Pandora didn't exist and they suggested bands to me that I might like, I'd never know about any of these people. You know, if I listen to the radio or just listen to Sirius, I'm never I'm never going to hear them. But there has to be that that recommending device that tells you about them. And maybe that's the way it is with poetry. You have to be told about someone to know about them. It's the ultimate hipster form. Oh, I was into them before anybody. And then I told everybody, and then, then they became huge. Yeah, it's oh. it's sad but true. Well, I want recommendations. Mm-hmm. I, I want more recommendations. I'll, I'll buy Jill Asbaum's book now. I don't know, man. I'm just, I, I just want new poetry. I feel like when I find somebody like this that I've never heard of and it just, like, opens my brain for a minute and, and it's like, I start, I start wanting to, I start thinking like the poet, you know, and I love that. I love that your brain starts working when you're reading a poetry collection or a couple of good poems. You just start working that way. Your brain starts thinking that way. And, you know, it doesn't happen necessarily with fiction. Like good fiction, it's like, oh, it's so often it's a story. It's a plot. It's a self-contained thing. But poetry, it's like you well, carry it around with you for the rest of the day. And it's also, uh, you know, the difference, I think, is that a novel is an entertainment. Like, you pick it up to lose yourself into the world, and and now you're a cop, and you're searching for a serial killer. You pick up poetry, and you are 
in the realm of experiencing that mm-hmm. emotion. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily entertainment. That's reflection it's and meditation almost. thought. Um, yeah. It's meditation. Yeah, it's a, that's yeah. exactly what it is, Julia. And I think that's you have to be open to that shit. Like if you're not if you're not in a place where you can sit down and actually contemplate the the words and the emotions and the imagery and the rhythm of the writing for a book of poetry or just a single poem, it just seems ephemeral and you're going to lose it. Um, so it, it really is a different sort of thing than any other kind of reading. It's certainly different than you know watching TV or going to a yeah. movie or something. I just want to read, I can tell we're wrapping up, um, so three little poem endings that I really love that are normally would be too, um, they sound too, like, quotey, but they all work good. So I'm going to read them. Um, this is the last few lines of okay. From the Cabin at Otter Lake. Um, there are many ways to love. An armful of ash along the path to the woodpile is one. The end. Uh, number two. And there's not a ton of poems in here about love, and I wish there were more poems about love and less about death, because he's really good on that. On Although I have to say that whenever the word lover is used in a poem, my lover, I, it's just yeah, a, yeah, I lover is a horrible just, word. I, I agree, a horrible I agree. word, and like... <laughs> Every every gross dude my mother ever dated would be like, I'm not your boyfriend, I'm your lover. And I'd be like, oh, God, I'm, I need to go throw up in my hat. Uh, <laughs> this one is... Can we add lover to, like, the word uh, the words that I hate? So lover, slit, uh, <laughs> and there's another word Panties. I hate. Moist. I'm not real fond of moist. Moist is the classic. Moist, moist yeah. 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 Slit, moist, lover. All right, I got two more lines to Sorry. You. Okay. <laughs> Wow, well, that really... I don't like those words. I'm sorry. Way to ruin that. <laughs> we got a theme here. <laughs> it, uh, the picture is coming into focus of what you don't like. <laughs> Misogyny. All right. <laughs> All right, so the last line of one about his lover being away for a week um, is, you are the space between each necessary word, which yes. I thought was really cool. And then finally, um, this, um, it's, a, it's a poem for his friend, and it said, We need a spirit, water won't offend, and a covenant, colon. Be kind. Live your life as if it were a promise you had to keep or die. And at first I was like, that's really cliche. And then the more I thought about it, the more I just, you know, it really crept into my mind. I couldn't stop thinking about it. So mm. live your life as if it were a promise to keep or die. I think the the one poem that was is really emblematic of um, of him that we didn't talk about is Sunday evening at the Stardust Cafe, yeah, where he's sitting and he's basically watching young poets being born. Um, uh, it starts with young people smoke cigarettes, drink coffee, flirt. That's the beginning, and then it ends with back at the Stardust, the waitress who is friendly brings my sandwich. An old woman mutters, squints at the menu, and counts her change. Tourists ride horse-drawn carriages clapping down the brick streets or dance on the deck of a cruise ship entering the harbor. The kids take their notebooks and leave. That's so good. I mean, it's a really evocative scene. So good. I like that. And I mean, also, any poem for me that has a horse in it, I think, I think as Julie will probably agree, is that's cool. You know, you're really overplaying this horse episode we did. Okay. <laughs> I thought that was going to be like a two episode joke. That's There's no such life. thing as a two episode joke with Todd. Let's just keep bringing it up. Oh, can I just state for the record? Now, listeners, listeners, I, I don't I don't know if you guys know this, but we actually do listen to the episodes after we record them. And I almost wet my fucking pants with the writer talking about 
Girls with feedback. <laughs> I actually said that. That's horrible. Yes. Yes. I should. Yes, you did. All right. I just want to mention two poems real quick that people should look up because they were really good. One is called What to Say If the Birds Ask, which is it, it kind of treads on cliche territory in that it's about it's it's like one of these poems that's about reading nature, like reading the language of nature. But it does it so well. I just I, I, I'm fine. I'm going to read part of it. But if it's true, some words are finally the soul's lexicon. Then I'll say this. Once there was a woman whose shadow blessed the light of a room in Boston, a man who filled the glasses of his friends with the best wine, a child who tasted the soft petals of flowers and spoke their many colors to swans rippling the summer pond in a silent lyric. Today, alone by the window, I've been translating the repeated warble of sparrows perched on the maple's high branches. What's next? What's next? They ask. Soon, I whisper. Soon we will know. And the other poem the question, which is by far oh, my yeah. favorite poem, it's incredible. He has a lot of stuff about rituals that you know, the, the sort of sad rituals that we cling to, um, despite the life not you know lasting and um, you know sort of breaking rituals inherently, and how we hold on to rituals or ideas, and that's the best one. So look up the question, if, yeah. Um, yeah. if anybody is curious. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, wow. thanks for well, uh, diving into that poetry. For- Thank your friend for introducing us to W.E. Butts. We yeah, Butts. Definitely. He's a... We Butts. And, a, and sad that he died. Yeah. yeah. It's too Sorry. bad. I guess people die, though. That's, it happens. And it happens. And he kind of knew it was coming. He talked about it a lot. <laughs> 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 and that is our... And button. scene. <laughs> And that's going to do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we read the novel Submergence by J.M. Ledgard. Follow us on Twitter, at Literary Disco. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. And thanks for listening.